Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. And welcome, everybody. Today, I'm speaking with Shane Molinari. Um, Shane, I know in our previous call, you mentioned that you started off uh, in the Marine Corps, in the military. Uh, well, it's actually it's actually the, the Marine Corps. <laughs> and uh, I know after that, yeah, looking at your bio, you, you started off as, a, as an engineer, uh, transitioning gradually into the cybersecurity field, uh, held a few positions as, uh, as a consultant in one of the big four firms, I believe, and moving up the ladder in the corporate world. I see another big four name here. And I think currently you hold the position of a director of information security and operations in a company called Blackline. Uh, if you want to step in, introduce yourself, that would be, I would be grateful. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I started out uh, back in, uh, without dating myself too much, back in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, well, got out of the military uh, from working in law enforcement there and then worked uh, around the uh, Department of Defense contracting for counterterrorism activities. Um, slowly migrated over into the cybersecurity space. Um, after one of my mentors kind of pushed me out the door, said I was kind of outgrowing my position where I was at, which is good. Uh, then started driving more into the cybersecurity hard space and then slowly into cybersecurity and data privacy and protection, uh, both doing uh, assessments as well as establishing programs, uh, cyber-based, either cyber risk or cybersecurity or data privacy. Uh, programs as well as recovering programs as well. So pretty much over the last, oh, so that pretty much covers me for the last 30 to 40 years. Okay, thank you for that uh, introduction. Absolutely. And, and you know, before we, we dive in and before we, I even ask you my traditional icebreaker questions, what what's the one thing that you've noticed like uh, that, you know, resonated the most when transitioning out of military life into the civilian world? Well, uh, the biggest change was obviously um, the structure. Um, in the military, you had uh, a definite structure uh, with regards to rank and file. Um, and uh, the other thing was that you were given a lot of responsibilities, you know, as you started out, especially from the Marine Corps standpoint, um, than what you would typically see in the civilian world, you know, with due respect to everybody out there. Uh, once uh, I transitioned out and got into the civilian space, uh, the controls weren't there quite as much as they were in the military, which is what you need, obviously, um, because their their purpose is to prepare you in the case of uh, the unfortunate scenario where you're in a war fighting capacity. Uh, you can't afford to be second guessing or you know, uh, doing whatever you want to do. You have to do what's best for the team. And that's what's uh, crucial then, and that translates into the civilian world as well. Uh, but obviously, the ramifications of stepping out on your own and doing your own thing, and a military in a warfighting position has, you know, potentially greater consequences. You know, with either life and limb, um, as mm. opposed to in the civilian world. Outside of, I'll, I'll caveat that statement with the outside first responders. You know, please you know, firefighting, et cetera, right? So that's, Got that's, it. that's the biggest thing right there. Okay. Thank you for that intro. So, you know, as, as a means of icebreaker, I typically ask a few questions. Maybe you can share, share your favorite drink. Absolutely. Uh, single malt scotch, uh, Balvini 17 and Balvini 21 are my absolute favorites. Good choice. Yes. Nice. Um, you know, the, and I think I repeat myself every time I record one of these episodes, but the main intent here in our discussion today is to learn more about you and about your journey. 
more specifically, um, it's not going to be about any type of technology or anything related to your current role or even to your previous role. It's more about the journey. So like, you know, just consider this as a, as a discussion, as an experience sharing exercise. Uh, and with that, I'd like to ask you if there's one thing you, you had known when you began your career, what would that be? If I had known, it would probably be uh, how to better communicate. That is one of the biggest challenges uh, that is still being faced in my pur purview, rather, um, between how to drive expectations, both from a, a team leadership perspective, as well as enter uh, operations between teams and um, from the translation from, uh, I call it gearhead speak, uh, from an engineer, a security engineer especially, uh, taking the technical aspects of what the issues are that are being seen and realized and translating them over to a business risk language. So if, if I had to have learned anything to do all over again from before, it would be, how to drive you know those soft skills that would be the biggest thing and in your opinion do you feel that the fact that you're ex-military affected you know that specific thing of you know you needing to uh you feel that you you could have done a better job in communicating um no as a matter of fact i would almost go the opposite in that realm uh the reason being is because what the military did is it it forced you or forced me um, to be able to take a step back and look at a bigger picture from a risk perspective. So before we engage in a mission, um, it would be identifying your ingress into the scenario, risks that came into play, egress, you know, and plans for A, B, C, and D, you know, and then making sure that you've got an eye on the, the larger scope, not just of what was being, what would the, what the mission was calling for, uh, but also uh, how you're communicating and escalating up through that chain. Uh, in the, once I got into the civilian world, uh, especially once I left Department of Defense, uh, from that contracting perspective, uh, the, that's where I saw a lot of the challenges coming into play with the respect again to well, actually on two different levels if i may take a step back one is on expectations on what was being needed uh, and two uh, when you translate over from somebody who would not had that experience in a structured world was how to move that communication uh, into somebody over younger generation, I'll, I'll say that, you know, when you start hitting 10 years, you're junior, and you're having those conversations, oftentimes you have to not just set the expectation, but you have to also set the reasoning behind it, whether it be risk-based or whether it be control-based or whatever the case may be. Um, that was the biggest challenge that I found. So the, actually in my world, uh, the military actually gave me a better benefit. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, looking back at your career, do you have like any, you know, one big blaring failure that you can point to? And uh, if there is any like specific lesson that you learned? Yes. Um, I would say my greatest, if I would, if, I'll call it a failure, why not? Um, was again, tied to communications. It was a, a see something, say something scenario where I saw a problem and instead of speaking up right then and depending on and leveraging the people around me from a team perspective, um, I decided to go on my own and find out what the root cause of the problem was. And then once I identified the problem <clears throat> was to bring about the solution as well. So my lesson that I learned out of that was don't be afraid to leverage the people around you. Uh, it is a team. And that's something that uh, I created 
is I considered that a failure, uh, not only in the sense of the time impact that it took to recover, get back to square one, and then uh, resolve the situation, uh, but it's something that was drilled into my head, you know, from time in the military and even before then as growing up on a farmer. If you have a problem, sound off what that problem is, because while you're spending the time to try to figure out what the root cause is, someone else on the team may have already realized that before and will have the solution sitting right in front of you. You know, that was so that was what I called my, you know, my failure and, of course, my my lesson learned coming out of that. So the uh, since that time, and that was when I was much younger in my career, since that time, I don't hesitate uh, today, uh, even with the teams that I have had in past recently and the team that I've got in front of me today, uh, I don't hesitate to leverage the existing teams around us. I'll give you an example. Uh, if I'm working in security operations and there's a question that comes up around a tool or an application rather, uh, I don't hesitate to draw in our security ar architecture teams because they have a, a better picture technically across the landscape. Uh, equally, I don't hesitate to call in you know, someone from the IT group or from operations uh, from the business operations perspective, or even GRC, if I have questions as to if it's impacting a client, if it's in, if it's strictly internal. So, in other words, it becomes a scenario where I'm driving the requirement of open the doors, bring those people in to have that conversation with us. You know, one to reduce time on for assessing the situation. Uh, two, you know, to identify what those solutions are quicker and most importantly it drives that team and partnership and collaboration mentality across the board where you take any pride that you may have and you set it to the side and you say the intent of our of what we're doing here you know is to monitor and respond and uh, prevent this from happening again and bring those people to the table that needs to be involved with it you know, at the same time, as opposed to, even if it's a heads up, as opposed to waiting and then pushing out information again, you're, because in that sense, you're resetting yourself to where you're trying to solve a problem yourself, as opposed to reaching out and gathering those intelligent assets, which is crucial. So it sounds to me like you've outlined all the advantage, advantages in why to share and pull in other resources. But can we just, you know, touch on the reason of like what caused you not to reach out originally? Then obviously you consider this as like one of your biggest failure. Like, was it pride? Was it ego? Was it just like, you know, something else? I'd say it was a combination of things. Uh, if uh, to lay that out, it would be I was still in a learning process. I wanted to show what I had learned. So pride and ego came into it. Um, it was also uh, from ego standpoint of let me show you what I what my capabilities are. Those are the biggest things. Um, the other thing, uh, not necessarily so much in pride and ego, but it was a concern of asking of of making the statement of I don't know, right? So instead of me going I don't know and I don't know who to reach out to. Uh, it became a scenario of, I don't know, so I need to solve this on my own so I don't look like an idiot, you know, as far as to the people that I'm working with, and especially to the people that I reported to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, you know, and, and this, the reason I ask this is because, you know, I I thought as, this would probably be the, the reason, and I've, I've read a lot of about this uh, lately. A lot of people in the industry are, you know, keep referring to the same thing you don't have to be you know the smartest person in the room it's not nope. it's not bad to say i mean it's not a sh you don't need to be ashamed in saying i don't know something exactly you're not expected to know everything so thank you for that uh, clarification Th these Absolutely. are exactly the the insights that i'm looking for here to for our yeah. listeners benefits and and you know touching on your you know <clears throat> failure what would you say your biggest accomplishment was 
My biggest accomplishment, uh, both in the cyber world and outside, is uh, uh, mentoring. Um, one of the one of the uh, my focus points has been on veterans coming out of the military. Uh, for probably the last 20 years, have been either prepping people for coming into the military, how to have you know candid conversations with the people who are recruiting you, uh, people who are coming out of the military, how to prepare, and hats off to the to the services today uh, for the transition programs that they have in place. Uh, because when I came out, that wasn't really that wasn't really there. It was to some degree, but nothing close to what we have today. Um, at the same time, a lot of my mentoring uh, with uh, veterans is, you know, how to navigate, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of coming into the civilian world and transit, uh, what's the word, transitioning your, your, your expertise in the military to that of a civilian marketplace. Uh, and most of all, and this is something that I found when I got out as well, the uh, the brotherhood and sisterhood that veterans, that active military realize while they're in those roles is not there in the civilian world, you know, just to be clear. So oftentimes you have to remind the people around you, hey, if you know a veteran, reach out, let them know they're not on their own. And it's especially important when the holidays come around. Um, and uh, if I may make a point there on what are some of the impacts to uh, not making those, not having those reach outs take place to those individuals is you see the average count of uh, veteran suicides uh, are 22 a day. You know, that's, that's unacceptable on multiple levels, right? And oftentimes it goes back to, I, I don't know what to live for. I don't know who to talk to. You know, I don't know who to reach out to. So it's just that constant outreach, which is taking place. So I'm always trying to stay on top of it as much as possible. Not so much on the, the suicide aspect or the, even the prevention aspect, as much as making sure that the veterans that I encounter know that they're, that camaraderie and that that brotherhood and that sisterhood is still there. It's just not wearing that same uniform any longer and you're going out in your different ways, but that contact is still there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and you're actively, you're actively mentoring then mostly veterans and I'm, I'm assuming your door is open. So if anyone wants to contact you, they, they may, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. And and we'll drop a note at the end of this episode with exactly how to reach out to you. Thank Fantastic. you. Thank you for that. Uh, yes. And for your young listeners out there, uh, what advice would you give them for anyone that wants to pursue a similar career, career to yours? My strongest recommendation would be to reach out to people who are doing the work. So reach, uh, because when you think of cybersecurity, you know, it's not just technology and in the sense of from an operations perspective and the tools that we're using, um, but it's also, you've got the security architecture, I mentioned that before, of having a more strategic mindset across the landscape of the organization from a technology perspective. And there's also governance, risk, and compliance when you start looking at the operations and that segue between the technologies and the security uh, from architecture and from operations to the business from a risk perspective. So don't hesitate to reach out and ask questions. What are you doing? What's your, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What is it like to be on a day and life of a security engineer versus a security architect versus uh, a security auditor, right? Or, you know, from somebody from a compliance perspective. And if you recognize and you start learning more about what those roles entail and what your daily life will be, it helps the, the young individual who's just coming into it to get a better idea of that looks like fun, you know, this is okay versus I'll be cutting myself to make sure I'm still alive, you know, at the end of the day, because this is absolutely not something that I want to do. And uh, because I have crossed paths with enough 
individuals just coming into the career field that thought to themselves, I have to get all these professional certifications on these applications only to learn as they got into it. But the, the security engineering aspect is not what they wanted to do. You know, it sounds fun, you know, but when you realize that you're not communicating with people on a, on a proactive, uh, having that proactive conversation as much as you would say in governance, risk, and compliance, uh, and whereas in security engineering, it's more of a reactive force. There's a problem that's coming up. We're seeing these issues. I need you to go fix this. You know, and it, it just takes the personality and what the passions are and helps them to better align with that career path that they really want to take. So going back to my initial recommendation would be, if you're interested in cybersecurity, if you're interested in cyber risk in general, look out on something on, on like LinkedIn is a good example. Find an individual who does this, open the door just to have that initial conversation. Hey, I'm interested in this, but I'm not really sure. Can you help me to tell me what it is that you actually do in this world? And it helps them to identify the areas within cyber practice that they want to get involved with. It also helps them identify industry. You know, an individual may be passionate about manufacturing and not so much about government or IT directly. Okay. So, and it also helps them identify the areas that they want to work when you consider that a lot of organizations are still either fully remote or hybrid between remote and on-prem and fully on-prem, you know? So it helps them identify the companies that are willing to work with them in each of those areas as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Thank you. And, uh, and I just wanted to emphasize, uh, I do agree with you and uh, I think it's a necessity. And especially if there's, if there are so many uh, like veterans out there in the cybersecurity field that are willing to provide some mentoring and free advices, because come to think about it, I mean, if you're just starting off, uh, this will put you on a path that you could, you know, find yourself after like three, five years into the journey that you feel that, you know, this might not be a fit. And maybe just having a few conversations before you get started uh, would be better, like a better career choice for you. Um, so yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, we'll put your information out there. So whoever wants to reach out to you, they, they would be able to do so. Um, switching gears here, I, I wanted to, to, to pick your brain on, you know, the relationship between the, the role of the CISO and the IT organization. Now, as you, as you probably know, I mean, some organizations, the CISO reports to, um, you know, either the CFO, COO, sometimes to the CEO. In other organizations, the CISO is a part of the IT organizations. What are your thoughts about, you know, that specific structure where the CISO reports into the IT? There are obviously pros and cons. Um, when the CISO is reporting into the IT organization, you know, the pro is that you have a direct link to anything that you need to be resolved on the operations end or in the architecture end, uh, especially if it's an issue that you're finding. Um, it also helps you better align with what the expectations are when you start looking at the changes that are taking place from a technology perspective. New infrastructure, on-prem versus cloud, hybrid. Uh, when you start looking at the uh, technical applications that are out there, you have a you have somebody who is more maybe more receptive and you have to sell less uh, to get what it is that you're looking for whether it be a new tool uh, additional headcount you know as well as you're part of that IT spend which is normally increased more on the IT side than it is on the security side uh, so you can kind of piggyback or you know hang on those coattails rather of the IT, of that IT budget world. The other edge of that sword, however, is that that in most of those times that I've come across, at least, especially from my time as being a consultant, as you mentioned before, with Big Fours so or PwC and Deloitte, what I found was that when you got a CISO that reports into the IT world, the challenges that that CISO usually faces 
is that ability to translate that language from the technical needs to a business risk to drive both that education and that innovation to take the organization as a whole down the path that you as the security expert and trusted advisor really needs to take them. You know, um, not taking anything away from the IT leadership, um, but when the CISO stands out and either reports up to say uh, the chief legal officer or chief risk officer or chief financial officer or the chief operating officer, you, the CISO has to take a step back and have a grander view across the enterprise, not just from the technology realm that often occurs when you're reporting to the CTO, uh, but uh, it makes you take a broader focus on the investment aspects, especially if you're talking to the COO or the CFO, uh, where you wanna take the organization with regards to the security spends that you're doing and you have to demonstrate in that proposal, that business mindset of what you wanna spend and what that return on investment is. Uh, it also, when that CISO is standing out, especially if they're reporting directly up to the CEO, for example, if they're standing on their own, that individual at the, at the, at the precursor to this, which was the CFO and CEO risk and so on, they have to communicate to the board and, and oftentimes have a seat at the board, but they still have to take on that language, that slant from the person that they're reporting to most of the time. Whereas if they're standing on their own and they're talking to legal or they're talking to privacy, and those are the reporting realms, now I have even more independence where I can bring what the cyber risks are what the impact of the organization is from a business, from a financial standpoint, and why the steps and the investments either in the operations and the process or the technologies, uh, why they need to come into play and what those benefits are gonna be. Again, from a return on investment, either hard dollar or operationally. Thank you for that uh, answer. Um, I wanted to also, uh tap into your mind and ask you about like uh you know looking back at your career and your journey uh so you know you start off in the military transition into an engineer role and then into the cybersecurity. what resources did you use like how did you get there what have helped you my biggest ones were the mentors that i had at those times um i when i i mentioned before about when I'm looking at someone just coming into the career field to reach out and ask somebody about what's happening, you know, what's, what happens in the world. Um, the people was my, was my biggest and best resources. I'm not taking anything away from schools or from certification or industry, or even, you know, from the library or online, especially in today's world where everything you can find virtually everything online. Uh, but the biggest thing was the people that were around me. You know, if I had questions, if I needed to learn something, especially when I made that, when I failed before and, and learned that lesson learned coming out of there was reach out and ask somebody because I didn't know. Uh, so the mentors that I had, like when I first came out, a gentleman by the name of David Artman or Dave Artman uh, from Applied Research Associates, he was my, he was probably one of my biggest mentors, at, you know, post-military. Uh, he was probably one of my biggest mentors and helping me to shape both my career and the direction outside of Applied Research Associates. He had realized, you know, early on, and he saw this, that as I started reaching a certain point in my education and the direction in my interests, he recognized that my interests were no longer going to be contained within the business that I was working at at ARA. And he recognized that early on and was there to tell me, you, you, the direction you're going is fantastic in supporting me, but it was, you need to move on outside of the company so that you can grow and become the, you know, a leader, is, which is the direction I was taking, and a better intelligence asset for business in general especially with regards to uh, cyber and risk and privacy. 
and he, he helped me to move on. And it was, to me, it was interesting uh, to see that happen because oftentimes you'll hear where I, as a, a manager or business owner or whatever, I have somebody that I know that does a great job. I don't want to release that individual. I want to hold them to them for everything I got. Whereas Dave was more of, you, you've got to move on. This is, you've gone as far as you can go here. I recommend you take these different paths, reach out to these different people and start track, you know, tracking that career path to where you want to be. But this is not it. And he was beautiful in the way that he handled it. Beautiful in the way that he uh, treated me as, as, as I made that exit from ARA. And then uh, I, I fast forward to my most recent times uh, when I was at Deloitte, uh, uh, Devin Amato, who's a, uh, a principal there at Deloitte, was my mentor when I was there. You know, when that, I, he was great because not only helping me to navigate that the daily, the day-to-days, you know, from dealing with uh, clients, issues, teams, et cetera, um, because, you know, most of our clients that we're dealing with were, you know, global, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar t- well over, you know, so how to navigate those political realms. But uh, Devin also helped me when I was interested in transitioning out of consulting and in back into industry. And he helped me to navigate what I needed to do to prepare to make that transition. And he opened himself up to what he had learned stepping out of consulting and getting into industry for many years, you know, and how it helped to shape him when he decided to go back into consulting, because now he sat on, but he had had that tremendous experience of sitting on both sides of the table. So the importance from those two people, you know, that I just named is that they were willing to open themselves up not just as a, as a manager or even as a leader for those companies, but they open themselves up as a mentor and, and they open themselves up rather as mentors and as leaders at the personal level to help guide me as I was moving forward, which is, that is priceless mm-hmm. in my book. Priceless. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, moving on to, uh, the next topic I wanted to uh, discuss, and you've been in the industry for, you know, quite some years now, uh, and you've probably heard of uh, a lot about all common myths in, in that, that revolves around our profession. Was there any one common myth that you wanted to debunk? If I was going to debunk something, it would be that uh, cyber threats are gonna be managed. <laughs> you know, in, in any shape or form. Uh, I, I go back to the mid 90s when I was recognizing how IT and cybersecurity was, you know, was increasing in trends and capabilities, but quickly recognized that the pace of cyber attacks and threats whether they be state sanctioned or criminal activities, which was the biggest piece, um, uh, was that was outpacing the ability to manage and safeguard information in general. Um, That was the, that was the biggest thing. And when you, and in the spends, even when you look at how much companies are spending on average, you know, uh, for to, to safeguard their assets, data, people, technology, uh, infrastructure, uh, even if that's, you know, tapping at, you know, roughly what, uh, $200 billion, you know, uh, went from 156 in 2020, their expectations I think is around 350 billion in the next four or five years. Uh, when you look at that and you're thinking that's a massive amount of money just to be focused in cybersecurity, and it is a lot of money, then you realize that the average cost each year uh, because of cyber attacks that's taken place is $600 billion. You know, so the, the value 
of being successful in your attacks against government and against uh, organ businesses, you know, banking, manufacturing, you know, governments as well. The 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 rewards that you reap if you're successful in your endeavors outpaces what somebody else is willing to spend, you know, from a protection standpoint. Uh, so that was so the the debunking would be, you know, you can not necessarily let your guard down, but you know, things are getting better. You know, things are mm-hmm. getting better. Don't let me get don't let uh, shouldn't have said that things are getting better by a long shot. Uh, we have better capabilities today than we did, you know, three years ago, five years ago, most definitely 10 years ago. But uh, for every step that you're taking to safeguard information, the bad person, the bad actor out there is taking two or three steps to figure a workaround. You know, if I can't take a direct run at you at your company, who else is going into your company? Third parties, for example, it was a great example, typical example. If I have third parties coming in, you know, maybe I can use one of the leverage, one of those third party accesses, you know, to get into your back door and then exploit your vulnerabilities from that perspective. And, you know, that's, that's all too common, though it is a focus, it's still all too common. So obviously, you know, the threat length landscape is getting more and more complicated, as you said. Oh, yeah. You also mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, it's, you know, at the beginning of the call, you mentioned that CISOs need to have business understanding and to be able to communicate uh, risks and threats and, you know, in a, in a business language. In your opinion, what are the most important skills that CISOs nowadays should have then? Because obviously, as you mentioned, the attack surfaces are just, you know, growing and, you know, they, on one hand, you mentioned that they need to have business skills, but on the other hand, you're talking about like very technical uh, risks. So where's the balance? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, CISOs today are kind of spread across I'll say I'll I'll reduce it down to three or four. So your CISO today serves as trusted advisor, especially when they're communicating to the board, they have to educate them. Um, They have to educate their their counterparts at the the CXO level uh, as well, as far as on not just from a threat landscape, but why we need to focus on those things. And to be clear, uh, the majority of concerns that seemed from my research, uh, the majority of the concerns that stems that comes from boards is how safe are we? Um, so you've got the trusted advisor, you've got the strategist, as I mentioned before, where the CISO has to be able to speak the business language to partner and understand not just how to sell, if you will, the business of security and cyber risk, uh, but also how to align the uh, with the the objectives and goals of the organization for where they are today, where they want to be tomorrow, so that you can shift and pivot over on to align what your security strategies are to meet those goals and objectives. When we start talking about, you know, the technologies, you know, in in the sense of the tools and the applications, et cetera, that are being leveraged, it, it's not so much on having a detailed understanding of the technologies as much as making sure that you have those intelligence assets, the people, you know, who are standing there leveraging those technologies, who are the subject matter experts on those technologies and to help the CISO to drive forward, to align with the objectives and goals of the company and recognize that threat landscape. So while the CISO has to have those hats on while they can have those conversations and speak intelligently, even on the technologies, uh, it's most important that the CISO have a body around them of people, whether it be in security architecture, operations, I mentioned GRC before, uh, to make sure that they have trusted sources that feed them intelligence that they can then take and uh, to either translate or push forward that information you know, to their other CXOs and as well to the board. Those are the big things. Got it. Uh, and do you see any, uh, like, what's the maturity that you expect out of the Caesar role? Like, where would the Caesar will be in, say, five years from now? 
the CISA role is going to, it's not really going to shift. I don't see it's going to shift as much uh, in the next five years, though a lot of the security aspects are becoming more uh, technology centric, like SOC operations, your security operations centers uh, are growing, uh, though that's definitely a driver behind that. The role of the CISO is still going to have to be able to maintain that. I'm your trusted advisor. I'm here to recognize and understand your strategy and align our program with those. Um, but I, even though the technologies are growing, I don't see the CISO becoming the technologist. I think my opinion, and there may be somebody out there that disagrees with me, uh, but I believe that if a CISO starts becoming more of the technologist to explain how we can leverage the technologies and applications to support our cause, uh, it creates risks in, in and of itself. For example, if I leverage an application, the risk is that I become dependent on that application and it either becomes too expensive to use or it becomes outdated, it's no longer usable. Now I've been driving this technology and instead of driving uh, the mentality or mentality or mantra of what we can do as an organization from an operations and from a process standpoint to set those foundations in place, that is your strategist, that is your advisor. Put the people and the processes in place, leverage the technologies to support that process. And by doing that, I can demonstrate alignment between the, the technologies that we're leveraging to support the processes that support the policies that support the business and the direction that it wants to go forward and that's going to be essential i think if you start looking over the next five years i don't i think that that same mantra is still going to be you know what's going to be driven going forward is the next five ten years again technologies are getting smarter no question. They're becoming more centralized, no question. But it's still a means of that soft skill, that communications to being that trusted advisor as well as the strategist. And not only to the CXOs and the and executive leadership at the board level, but also how to communicate those requirements down and to the teams so that they understand the direction the business wants to go, why they want to get there, what we need to do that, why I need your help, you know, my teams, why I need your help to help me get there, and what are your recommendations as we start moving forward? Can we leverage the existing process? Can we leverage the existing technologies? Can we leverage the existing people as well? We have to take that into consideration. And so I think that'll be more of a, a continued effort going forward, not a shift mm -hmm. in a different direction. Okay, and in your opinion, what will we see in the industry next in the cybersecurity world? Mm. Uh, I mentioned before about uh, SOCs, the Security Operations Center is growing. Um, that is gonna be one thing that's gonna continue to happen simply because as we start looking at one, uh, uh, I also mentioned before remote operations in a hybrid scenario uh, that opens the door for risks um, by itself because now that threat landscape has gone from you know on a bad actor attacking a business to uh, a bad actor leveraging the individual now to be able to open that back door going into the business. Um, uh, a simple example that I've used in past would be, I'm working at home, you know, I, I live at my house, I trust the people who are living there, my family, you know, so I may not lock my laptop, you know, my teenager jobs on, on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on my laptop and hits out on this torrent site or, you know, a gaming site, and now, my laptop is exposed to whatever viruses and malware attackers, bad things that are happening out there in the real world to my laptop that is tied to my business. So now the, the, the threat landscape has, has gotten more complex in that situation. Um, so that's, that's where I see things uh, from a, what the concerns are gonna be growing. I mentioned SOC expansion to serve as that 
uh, reactionary force. I see the uh, governance and compliance end expanding as well. You see where uh, the cybersecurity maturity model uh, has started being pushed out uh, in industry as well. Um, and uh, if you're wanting to, and if you're intending to do business with the government, for example, uh, but you're also seeing where where those compliance requirements are also falling into NIST in general, which is what's driving ISO 27001. If you have any clients that are interested in doing business with the government, say banking, uh, you have FINRA and FedRAMP that comes into play, you know, healthcare, uh, uh, you've got uh, that, those uh, Hit regulatory by high trust. Yeah. Well, no, I'm talking more from the, from the NIST perspective. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, in that sense. So that compliance driver is coming into play because one of the things that was interesting to see is in history where the government was looking at the businesses and saying, you have to demonstrate that your security is, in, is on, on point where it needs to be or we're going to fine you. And it was challenging to do that because those compliance requirements were, were intentionally vague, but you still had to demonstrate alignment. In recent history, you saw that shift take place from security to data privacy, where now I'm not looking at how you safeguard that information. I'm looking at how you manage that information. And if I see that you can't manage that information with the safeguards being the, the security being behind that, then it's gonna be easily identified because it, the information is gonna be exploited in one fashion or another. So now I can come after you company from the government's perspective in fines and penalties, you know, with, uh, with the individual's information being the tip of my spear. You know, to drive that. So I see that the privacy taking a more uh, uh, tip of the spear approach, you know, with security not necessarily sitting on the back burner, but it's running right behind it to demonstrate, here's how I manage my data. Here's how I ensure that the right people, processes, and technologies are in place to ensure that while I'm managing the information, I'm protecting that information with the understanding that if I don't manage that information correctly, bad things are going to happen and I'm going to pay a price for it. Mm -hmm. I think it'll continue down that path. Okay. Interesting. Uh, we're almost at the tail end of the episode for today. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts about, you know, I, I just had a couple of quick questions around vendors and then I could let you go. Um, in your opinion right now, like in the current market uh, situation in the industry as it is, what should vendors stop doing? Vendors should stop acting like a business and start acting like a partner. Uh, I say that because uh, the vendors have to put their, they have to swing around and put themselves in the client's shoes. What is my client experiencing? I have to have a better understanding of what my client does, how their business operates, and how we provide that benefit to the company. Uh, in that sense, I'm looking at, you know, whether it be a technology or whether it be a service in general that I'm providing for them, I have to understand what my clients is trying to accomplish and then bring that to the table and then work with that client as we start moving forward down the path to work with them to recognize some of the challenges that they may be facing. And again, how we can provide a service or technology, you know, to benefit them, but it's as a partner. You know, hey, you might want to consider reducing these areas over here to benefit these areas over here. You're collecting a lot of data on this piece right here. Uh, you may consider looking inward and storing data over here as opposed to on our cloud environment because it's costing you this much money. And at this rate that you're going, it's going to cost you this much money instead. You may be more, you may be more receptive or maybe better off in the long run of saving yourself time and saving yourself money and move the technology off to a different direction. Um, and by doing that, I quit being the, the vendor, if you'll use, if I can use that term, and you'll start being more of not just a partner, but a trusted advisor as well. And in that sense, you're taking the long game. Instead of having a two or three year relationship, 
I'm now building a 15, 20, 30 year relationship instead. And that's where the vendors need to be, you know, in, in general. Mm -hmm. I think for that, in order for that to work, um, the whole sales culture needs to uh, change because obviously there is a dissonance between, you know, building a 15, 20 years relationship. That's not what the, the average salesperson looks at. No. They're looking at no. the next quarter. Uh, exactly. Subscription yeah. based is exactly yeah. it. You know, yep. Got it. Yep, that's exactly it. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me um, because I, I look at that just about every day uh, because of messages I get from people that I know and that I, uh, I work with and, and uh, communicate with on an ongoing basis and, and pick up where new conversations take place as well. That's the best way to reach me. Got it, LinkedIn. And you also mentioned that you're open for mentorship uh, um, assistance, let's just say. So if people want to reach out to you, they, they can. Absolutely. And LinkedIn, again, would be the best way to do that. Yeah. And if even if I'm not available, I know people in my network that are. Okay, understood. Yeah. Uh, final question before we can wrap this up. Uh, if money was never an issue, what would you do with your life and <laughs> would you do anything different? Uh, no, uh, I, I have to say I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones that although my, my career has shifted and um, uh, morphed, if you will, from from government, military into the civilian world, it still pretty much stayed along the same path. Uh, if money was no interest, uh, then uh, I would continue doing what I do. It's my passion, right? Uh, so that's why I'm never really too concerned about titles as much as I am the people that I'm working with and what I'm going to be accomplishing. So it's it's been good. Life has been good to me. Okay, thank you for that. And thank you again for taking the time today, Shane, and joining me in this uh, episode in CISO's Insiders. Uh, enjoy the talk. And hopefully your insights would be able, you know, some people would, some listeners would be able to walk away with some insights as a result for this, of this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Ben. My pleasure.